Thank you, Zach and Gabby. We're going to uh, open our Bibles, and uh, we're going to read from Colossians chapter 1. So if you want to join me in turning there. Hopefully, uh, as the song said, hopefully your soul is at rest these days. I know it's, it's tough with a lot of that's going on, but hopefully deep down, because of the love of Christ, you, uh, you have rest deep in your soul. Colossians chapter 1, and we're going to uh, read starting at verse 15. Colossians 1, and we're going to start with verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Brent? Well, good morning, everybody. I have to admit, it is so nice to have people in the sanctuary. Uh, I missed the first period of time where uh, everything was being done online, and uh, so it was only in this last uh, lockdown where I had to come and preach to a camera, and I've gained a whole new appreciation for radio DJs, people whose job is to go and talk to a microphone with nobody staring at them. Uh, I do appreciate feedback. It's hard enough with a mask. I can't tell if you're sticking your tongue out at me or disagreeing with me, but at least I can uh, see the odd nod of a head or, or something. So it's nice to, to have you all here. Uh, I wanted to begin this morning with a really profound question. And the question is this, and oh, by the way, welcome and, and good morning to all the people uh, on Zoom. It's, I'm glad that you're here as well. Um, the profound question is this, what is it that makes you feel sick to your stomach? Probably not the kind of question you're expecting from a sermon at church. Uh, James Corden is the host of the Late Late Show, and uh, you have to stay up really late to watch his shows. So you may not even know who he is. He's quite funny, uh, and he took over from Craig Ferguson, who was quite funny as well. Uh, and one of the recurring skits or segments that he has on the the Late Late Show uh, is 
a segment called Spill Your Guts or Fill Your Guts. And what it is, is with the celebrity that happens to be on that show, he has them sit around a round table that spins. And on the table, there's eight, nine, maybe ten food or drink concoctions that are absolutely disgusting. If you remember the show Fear Factor, even on Survivor, these things are really, really disgusting. You won't die from eating them or drinking them, but it's not something that you would choose to eat or drink. And the way that the segment goes is that there is a number of embarrassing questions. Three questions for the celebrity, three questions the celebrity asked James Corden, the host. And typically it would be a question really embarrassing to ask. It might be about something to do with money or, you know, if it was a musician, what, what's the worst city to do a concert in? Or for, for James Corden, the host, who, who are the top three or the worst three uh, guests you've ever had on? So questions that they just don't want to answer. But if they don't spill their guts, they got to fill their guts. And so I've seen it a number of times. And beside them, both celebrity and the host is a puke bucket, for lack of a better term, uh, and a glass of water or a glass of milk. And so I've actually seen it where one of them has not wanted to answer the question. They've consumed what the other person has chosen for them in advance that they will have to eat or drink if they won't answer the question. And I've actually seen numerous times where they've tried to swallow it and they end up spitting it up into the bucket. But this one particular time, Justin Bieber was the guest. And Justin Bieber asked James Corden a question, and he chose for him what he would have to drink if he wouldn't answer the question. And it was hot dog juice. I didn't even know there was such a thing. And in my mind, I'm going, compared to a lot of the other stuff that's on the table, it didn't seem that bad. And James Corden refused to answer the question. So he took this cup of hot dog juice and drank about half of it. And he got it into his mouth, and he could not swallow it. He tried, he started gagging, and he ended up having to spit the hot dog juice out of his mouth. And I'm sure all of us, when I ask that original question, can actually think of things that make our stomach turn. I'm not sure if any of us have tried hot dog juice, but it might be reading in a car. Uh, it could be certain smells that turn you off. Uh, for me, any ride in an amusement park makes my stomach turn. Sometimes we even say that certain current events or, or attitudes of certain people make us want to vomit. Well, this week I came across a quote. It says this, I know you inside and out, and I find little to my liking. You're not cold, you're not hot, far better to be either cold or hot. You're stale, you're stagnant, you make me want to vomit. I thought, wow, I would hate to be on the receiving end of that note from somebody else. It, it, it sounds like a relationship gone bad. But would it surprise you if I told you that the author of that quote is Jesus? And that there was a group of believers that made him feel sick to his stomach. It's hard to imagine Jesus feeling sick to his stomach. And yet the reality is that the qualities about this group of believers that made him want to be sick are qualities that are quite similar to many churches today. 
And that these people who made Jesus want to be sick aren't as peculiar or as strange as we might hope they would be. What's the spiritual condition that could actually make Jesus feel like he wants to throw up? And what's the remedy? Well, as we've been going through this series on these letters to the church in Revelation, we now come to the final letter. The letter to the church in Laodicea. If you've got your Bible uh, at home or, or here this morning, uh, turn with me to Re- Revelation 3 to verse 14. And as I work our way through the message, I'm going to work our way uh, through the letter. Laodicea is probably the most famous of the churches on this route that Jesus traveled, delivering these letters to the churches. And out of all the seven churches, Laodicea received the most scathing condemnation. What is it about the church, or sorry, what is it about Laodicea that made them so famous? What is it about Laodicea as a city that made them stand out? Well, there's a few things, and, and I know sometimes this is where you'll check out on a sermon, because, okay, you're going to talk about this biblical town that really doesn't matter, and it's really not relevant, but, but this really is relevant. To understand Laodicea, and then to understand this church that found itself in the midst of Laodicea is really relevant to the context of the letter. So the first thing you need to know about Laodicea is it was very wealthy. It was highly commercialized. They had all sorts of resources. They enjoyed the uh, most luxurious of amenities of their day. There were stadiums, theaters, shopping centers, public baths, which doesn't sound really exciting to me, but those were the things that Laodicea had that made them realize how successful they really were. In AD 60, an earthquake toppled Laodicea. And Laodicea had so much wealth, they did not even have to rely on uh, Rome for aid in rebuilding their city. They were able to do it themselves. They had all the resources. They were very self-sufficient. Laodicea was also known for its wool and its garment industry, specifically wool that came from black-wooled sheep. And they sent this wool and garments made from this wool all across the world. The Laodiceans were well-dressed people. They were also known for their medicine. Uh, Laodicea had a school of medicine. They churned out doctors. And specifically, Laodicea was known for its advancements in medicine for eyes. They had come up with a salve that was known around the world And that's another thing that made Laodicea very famous. Another thing that was prominent in Laodicea, wasn't really a positive thing, uh, was their water supply. They didn't have an adequate supply of water for their population. Uh, Coloss, not too far away, was known for its cold springs. Uh, Hierapolis, about five miles away, was known for its hot springs. Uh, And so what Laodicea did, because they were so resourceful, they actually built a stone pipeline, an aqueduct, from from Hierapolis Hierapolis, uh, to Laodicea 
to bring this, this boiling hot water from the springs to Laodicea. But the only problem was by the time the water got to Laodicea, it wasn't boiling hot anymore. Uh, it, it was lukewarm and, and brackish, and, and, and it tasted and, and smelled like minerals, salty. And in the midst of Laodicea was a church. And they bear the same similarities to the water supply in Laodicea. We'll get to that in a moment. Now, from all appearances, Laodicea, the church, was very impressive. Remember that question we keep asking? What is it that impresses Jesus about a church? Well, Laodicea was an impressive church. From outer appearances, they were strong, uh, they were prominent, People there would probably have considered themselves happy and blessed. They, they came from great houses. Uh, some of the most elite of the elite of Laodicea called the church in Laodicea their home church. We don't read that they were facing persecution like some of the other churches we've seen. Uh, we don't read of any gross immorality or, or, or false teaching. People would have concluded that Laodicea is not only a wonderful place to live, But Laodicea was a great church to be part of. But Jesus had his eyes on them. And he perceived a great problem. A problem great enough that he says it turned his stomach. As we begin into the letter, we once again get this description of the author. Jesus is the author. He he knows the deeds. He's got his eye intimately on these churches and he's writing to these churches and he identifies himself with descriptions that are linked directly to the need of the church and it's no different in the letter to the church of Laodicea and so if you you uh, look in your bible at verse 14 it says in chapter 3 to the angel of the church in Laodicea write these are the words of the amen the faithful and true witness the ruler of God's creation. And so he describes himself in three ways, that he is the amen, he is the faithful and true witness, and the ruler of God's creation. Now, we all understand what amen means. We, we say amen when we want to show our agreement to something. And when Jesus identifies himself as the amen, what he is saying is that everything that he is about to say is true. And it's very important And as the faithful and true witness, what it means is that everything that Jesus says not only is true, but it's the whole truth. It's nothing but the truth. There's nothing hidden. There's nothing exaggerated. Jesus is going to say things exactly how they need to be said. And so he's true. He is the, the faithful and true witness. And as well, he is the ruler of God's creation. Jesus is the original cause. He is the creator. Jesus is God. He's our redeemer. And as we saw in letters uh, that we've already looked at, as creator, as God, he holds all power and all authority. And so who better to be able to to give an analysis, to take a look and, and, and to give an appraisal on the church than Jesus himself? And so the letter, he continues in verse 15, and Jesus says, I know your deeds. 
He knew their deeds. And it revealed a problem. And it made him want to vomit. As we move into 15, verses 15 through 17, we, we read Jesus' appraisal of the Laodicean church. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. That's Jesus' appraisal. A few things I want to note before we dig into the appraisal. The first thing is, although you may be surprised to hear me say this, Jesus is not speaking or writing in anger. This letter is dripping with compassion. And there's going to be an unbelievable twist as we make our way to the end of this letter. The second thing to note is this letter is written to believers. And that might make your understanding of verse 20 different than how you've understood it your whole life. Few words to understand uh, the, the meaning, the literal meaning. Verse 15, Jesus says, I know your deeds that you are neither cold. The Greek word there means freezing cold. And the word hot means boiling hot. Uh, And then the other word, uh, it says, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. In Greek, there is an actual word that means spit. That's not the word that's used here. The word that's used here means to puke to vomit, to barf, whatever word you want to use that gives you the full meaning of what Jesus is saying here. I know your deeds. You're not freezing cold. You're not boiling hot. You're lukewarm and I want to vomit. That's what Jesus is saying to them. So that's his appraisal. But but there's a question I think we've got to answer. And if you look at it long enough, I think this answer might stick out, or question might stick out to you. Why would Jesus prefer the Laodiceans to be cold versus lukewarm? And to answer that, it requires that we understand what Jesus is meaning by using the word hot and using the word cold. And there's, there's two views. The first view is that hot and cold represent a spiritual spectrum. That hot is being passionate and on fire in your commitment to Jesus. Cold would be those who oppose and reject Jesus altogether. But the question still remains. So Jesus is saying to the Laodiceans that I would rather you oppose and reject me outright rather than just being kind of wishy-washy and in the middle? Uh, How can we make sense of that? And commentators often use a train to explain this. Hot being a train that's on the tracks. Cold meaning uh, being a train that's sitting beside the tracks. And lukewarm being a train that's partly on the tracks and partly off the tracks. As you can imagine, the most useful is a train on the tracks. But if the train's off the tracks, at least it's not 
causing any opposition. But a train that's partly on the tracks, that's really not useful at all. It's a distraction. It causes more bad than good. And so using that analogy, Jesus is saying, I would rather you be right off the tracks than, than doing nothing for the kingdom and, and being partly on the track and partly off the track. And so in that way, we could understand what the Laodiceans were like. And that's one view. And, and it's not necessarily the one that I feel is the best, but many people will look to that spiritual spectrum. The second way of looking at it is that Jesus is using a word picture based on the water supply issues of Laodicea. And so hot water is that soothing, medicinal usefulness of hot water. Cold water represents the refreshment that one has who is tired and and weary. So there's a usefulness to cold water. There's a usefulness to hot water. And what Jesus is saying, you Laodiceans, you're neither hot nor cold. You're, You're kind of like that last mouthful of tea after you've forgotten that the teacup has been sitting beside you for half an hour. And you pick it up and you take that last mouthful in your mouth and it's like, whoa, what do I do? It's like, do I try to swallow this or do I spit it back up in my cup? That's what the Laodiceans were like, that last mouthful of of lukewarm drink that you just have a hard time swallowing. What's another word for lukewarm? Okay, How, how how does tea or water, how does it get lukewarm? What do you have to do to it to make it lukewarm? Just sit there. Lukewarm is room temperature. You don't have to do it. How do you get cold water? What do you put in the fridge? Put ice cubes in it. How do you get hot water? Well, you heat it up. You boil it. You nuke it. But lukewarm water just becomes what the environment is around it. I think that's what Jesus is saying to the Laodiceans. You don't do anything. You have become just like the environment around you. And so Jesus' appraisal is that they are lukewarm. And so what is a lukewarm Christian? Well, from this letter, we see that a lukewarm Christian is one who is indifferent, who is apathetic, who is passionless in their commitment to Jesus. And why? Well, specifically for the Laodiceans, because they put their trust in their own self-sufficiency and their own self-satisfaction rather than putting their trust in Jesus. And how did Jesus come to this appraisal? He comes to it by exposing two related problems that were alive and well in the church at Laodicea. And here's the troubling thing for me. As I studied a number of different commentaries and looked at what other people had to say about this passage, the same comment came up over and over and over again. Out of all the seven churches, the one that most represents the church of today, of North America, is the church of Laodicea. What were the problems that Jesus exposed in Laodicea? Well, the first one is this. Their commitment lacked passion. They embraced a, a, a weak and indifferent 
commitment to Jesus. Like, don't get me wrong, they believed in Jesus. But gone was the enthusiasm. Gone was the urgency, the passion. Their heart just wasn't in it anymore. And if I'm being honest, that describes a number of Christians that I know today. And if I'm being really honest, that describes my Christian walk at different parts of my journey. And why is it that indifference and apathy and passionless, my, my heart not being in it, why do those words and phrases sound familiar? Why do they, why do they resonate, with my, resonate with my experience and maybe your experience? I think for a number of reasons. One is that there's a disconnect between my words and my actions. The things that I say that are important or should be my priorities just aren't in my life lived out. I have a fear of extremes. I don't want to be at school, in my workplace, in my neighborhood. I don't want to be seen as the religious nut, the religious fanatic, the the fuddy-duddy, the ultra-conservative. I've made my comfort a priority. That's why I fear extremes. That's why so many of us Christians want to live with, with one foot in the, in the church for security purposes and one foot in the world because we want to enjoy all that the world has to offer. And yet Jesus says, in God's economy, a priority of comfort and pleasure makes me nauseous. I'm looking for followers who are passionate and who, have, who live with a kingdom purpose. And so the Laodiceans, and I think us at times, we, our commitment lacks passion. And then the second thing, the second problem that Jesus exposed that's related to the first problem is that their arrogance blinded them from their true condition. The Laodiceans evaluated themselves using the world's standards. And you know, when they looked at themselves in the mirror, they liked what they saw. They looked in the mirror and they, they saw that they were rich. They had an abundance of material blessings. They were a success. Just look at us in the mirror. We're a success story. And they weren't just rich. It says they were wealthy. The, the riches just kept flowing in. And they took their wealth as a sign of, of security and success and happiness. And their wealth became their treasure. And they looked in the mirror, and not only did they see they were rich and wealthy, they didn't have any needs. They could supply all their own needs because they were self-sufficient. They had the resources. They didn't need anybody's help. And for the Laodiceans, what a disastrous combo. Because what happened is they, they put their trust in themselves. They put their passions and their energies towards pursuing this treasure. And they loved what it brought them. Pleasure and, and recognition and status. 
They were so busy pursuing wealth. They didn't have time or didn't really find a need to put God first. Their pleasure and their comfort became their God. And as they looked in the mirror, their affluence, affluence blinded them to their true spiritual condition. And the problem for the Laodiceans is they stared at themselves in the mirror. Jesus is standing behind them. And he's going, no, 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 no. You're not seeing yourself right. Let me tell you what I see. And Jesus continues in the letter and he says, you're wretched. It means your heart is blinded to the truth. As a result, you're pitiful. You think you look so good. You're an object of extreme pity. You're poor. But no, Jesus, we're rich. No, spiritually, you're poor. No richer than a beggar who, who lives off somebody else's crumbs. You're blind. It came from a city known for medicine to deal with eye issues. And yet Jesus says, you know, you're blind. Spiritually, you're blind. And you're naked. Oh, you may have the nicest garments exported across the world, but spiritually, you're naked. What an appraisal. I don't know how I would take it if that's what Jesus had to say about me. You're wretched, you're pitiful, you're poor, you're blind, you're naked. What a horrible place for the letter to end. If it were to end here. And but it doesn't. The, the letter ends with a compassionate appeal by Jesus to the Laodiceans and by extension to us to enjoy intimate fellowship with him. I find it hard to believe that, that someone who could say, you make me want to vomit, would then turn and say, but I love you more than you can ever imagine and I'm not going to leave you like this. But that's what Jesus does in the end of the letter. That's, that's this unbelievable twist to the letter. And as we come to the end of the letter, Jesus offers to them a remedy. A remedy for them to change the direction that they're going and to return back to an intimate fellowship with Jesus. And that remedy is really three small phrases. Wake up. Go shopping. And open the front door. The order really has wake up in the middle. The first thing Jesus says is go shopping. Buy from me. And these Laodiceans, they love shopping. They, they had a shopping center. Hard to imagine. 
Jesus says, I counsel you to buy or acquire from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Jesus says, turn from your self-sufficiency and find your sufficiency in me. Don't look to the things of this world as your riches, but come to me for the riches that I can supply. Gold, which speaks of a growing faith. Uh, White clothes that that speak of clothing ourselves in the righteousness of Jesus. This salve that Jesus would offer them for their eyes so their spiritual blindness can be removed so they can see things correctly. Buy from me. Go shopping. Wake up. Repent. Repent. Earnestly repent, it says in verse 19. Realize that you're heading in the wrong direction. Acknowledge and and confess your true condition and be willing to make a change. And then perhaps the most popular, well-known part of this letter. Jesus says, go shopping, wake up, And then he says, open the front door. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. You know, the story is told of a man who had a six-year-old daughter and she was in a coma and she lay in a hospital bed and day after day after day, this man came and visited his daughter and he brought balloons and stuffed animals and he sat with her and talked to her, held her hand and read to her and all he ever received was her labored breathing. And one day he came in to do his usual routine and a nurse who was just overcome with the, the, the unrewarded faithfulness Uh, uh, that the father um, was experiencing, said to the father, it must be hard to love your daughter the way you do when she is like she is. And without missing a beat, the father said, I will continue to come every day and to bring flowers and to bring stuffed bears and to read and to talk to her. Whether she's oblivious to it or not. Because I love my daughter, whether or not she loves me back. And that is the picture of Revelation 3, verse 20. A nauseous creator standing at the door of the very people who are making him feel nauseous, patiently knocking. Desiring to have intimate fellowship once again with his people. A famous painting, I'm trying to think of the name, Holman Hunt, I believe, was the painter, but in 1853 he painted a a very famous picture of uh, Revelation 3, verse 20. Um, It was titled The Light of the World. And it's a picture of Jesus holding a lantern standing in front of an old English cottage door. Uh, The door had vegetation growing up all around it. Uh, And Jesus is just standing with his hand knocking on the door, holding his lantern. And everything seems normal until you look at the picture 
really close. And you realize there's no doorknob on the outside. The only way that door will open is if someone on the inside opens that door. I don't know if this message has left you feeling discouraged, defeated, challenged. Don't let your sin and your failures keep you from resuming intimate fellowship with Jesus. Whether as I've talked this morning and you've been thinking about your Christian walk, your commitment to Jesus, how you see yourself in the mirror, whether you feel foolish, mixed up, messed up, worn out, discouraged, backslidden, compromised, lukewarm, take heart. Jesus hasn't turned his back on you. And he's standing at the door of your heart and he's knocking. He wants to come in and to have intimate fellowship with you. Stay a long time. Will you open the door? This is the message from Jesus to the church at Laodicea and by extension it's the message from Jesus to our church, to each one of us. May God give us ears willing to listen. May he give us eyes that are able to ascertain our true condition. May he give us the humility to confess those things about us that must make Jesus nauseous. May God give us the courage to do what's necessary to live life making an impact for the kingdom for as long as we're on this earth. And may God give us the strength to stand faithful till the end.